I get the opportunity to uh, teach y'all for a little while. Hopefully it's good. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. But I've had I've had a lot of trouble with this message. Not 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 in a bad way. It's just you know I, I get up here and I had an idea of what I wanted to talk about, and I try to write it down because I gotta have notes. You're like I'm not I'm not Tyler. Tyler can come up here with three words on a piece of paper and preach for an hour and a half about it. If you look here on my, on my review of my word, it says this is page one out of 17. So we're different. I got to have everything written down. I got I to gotta have something that keeps me in line because if I get off track, I'll go through 17 pages in five and a half minutes and it doesn't do anybody any good. So I got to have something that keeps me on track. And I promise you, it won't feel like 17 pages. It's just, that's just how it, the wording's big so I can read it. So... Hang with me. All right, don't, it, it won't be that long. But I had a lot of trouble getting this in the words. I'd come up, I was upstairs, I spent like, I don't know, 10, 12 hours up here the last couple of days trying to, figure, trying to get it down on paper. And I would start writing and it wouldn't make sense, so I would, I would erase it. And I'd start writing and it wouldn't make sense, so I'd erase it. So then I was like, well, I'll just, Tyler gave me some advice. You just record yourself speaking it and then take notes off of that. So then I'd start speaking and I'd speak for about 20 minutes, like, what the heck am I even talking about? So I erased it and I started over and I did that three or four times and finally God got tired of having fun with me and he decided that he'd just give me some notes to write down. So when I left here at 11 last night, I finally had some notes written down. <laughs> so this morning I want to speak for a few minutes on God's amazing grace. God's amazing grace. And this grace comes in many ways. God's amazing grace draws us to repentance. God's amazing grace showers us with mercy. And God's amazing grace gives us the strength to live a holy life. And there's many people in this place today, myself included, who can probably remember the moment when we first, or maybe when we last, encountered God's amazing grace. It doesn't always stick the first time. Sometimes you, you get it the first time and you leave it, and it's got to come back and, and it sticks you again. But for me, I, I remember the time and the place the day, I think I know the day, if I, if I remember correctly, it was January 22nd, 20, 2012. And I was sitting probably two seats to my right from where Pam is. That's where I was, daytime place. I was right here. You know, if you remember the time and the place, you probably remember the sermon or the song. I don't remember the sermon. I couldn't tell you one word Marty said. But I remember the song. And it was Jeremy Smith and Sam singing, What Can Wash Away My Sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And, and I, you know, I experienced something in that that I had never felt before. And I remember that song. I remember that song, that, that seat, that place for the rest of my life. I can even tell you what I was wearing. Yeah, tell you what I was wearing. I had on some dark blue jeans, a white button-up polo shirt, the long sleeve tight with the, the different color course on it. You know, it had the, had the tan skin with the red hat and the blue shirt, whatever it was. The, the real polo. Right? And, and then I had a black Columbia sweat, you know, zip-up vest over, over that and some really pointy cowboy boots. Really pointy, like long, super long toes. I remember what I was wearing. You know, and we have those moments like that and they mean something. We can remember every detail about them because we, it changed, something in us is so crisp and clear because it changes, it changes us forever. When we encounter God's amazing grace, we don't forget it. We don't forget it. You know, I... It's the moment where our life changes forever. It's that moment where we realize our need for a Savior. Or maybe it's that moment where even more so we realize our need for a Lord. So I hope and I've, I've hoped and I've, I hope and I pray, I'm still praying in my mind that this word today may strengthen those of you today who have maybe have been wavering in your faith. You know, sometimes we go through seasons where we feel dry, we feel out of place, we just kind of wavering in our mind and our heart. So I hope it strengthens you if you're wavering. But if you've here, you've never tasted and seen of the goodness of God or tasted and seen of his amazing grace, and I hope that this word today will draw you to him. If we've grown cold or weak, because my wife will tell you I've been cold the last few months or so, just in my attitude and my worship and things that I do, I've been cold. And I think we all, again, go through those seasons and those times where we grow cold and we grow weak. We get tired of, of fighting. We get tired of doing the things we know we're supposed to do, even though 
we know we're supposed to do them. And we just get, we go through seasons. So if you're in that season where you're feeling cold or weak, and I hope this gives you comfort, it gives you strength, it helps you to warm up a little bit, right? So, we think of Amazing Grace, what do we think about? Think about a song, right? Think about a song. I'd sing for you, but nobody wants that. <laughs> so we think about a song. If Ian wasn't on pressure, I could hear him to sing for you. But the song starts out, it says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. You see, in God's amazing grace, it can appear in many different ways. You know, it may be a Damascus road like Paul experienced. It may be like John Wesley where he, had, he said his heart was strangely warmed. It may be Maybe you're just praying and reading the scripture. Maybe you're reading a passage you've read 5,000 times before and it's never meant anything, meant anything to you. All of a sudden it just clicks. And you, and you see God in a new way, in a new light, and that grace reveals himself to you. It doesn't matter how it appears to you. It doesn't matter how it comes. But one thing is constant when it comes, and that is your life has changed forever. The man who actually wrote the song was a man by the name of John Newton. And John Newton's got a pretty, pretty amazing story. Uh, John Newton, he had some knowledge of the scriptures, but he was captain on a, on a slave ship. He transported slaves from Africa to the New World or to Europe or somewhere. He, he was on one of those ships. And they said that John Newton was so vile, so wicked, that even when they were in port, the other sailors wouldn't hang out with him. Now, a bunch of sailors won't hang out with him. You are pretty bad, I would have to say. So the sailors wouldn't even hang out with him. They wanted nothing to do with him. So he was so wicked, so vile, that the sailors wouldn't even hang out with him. And he was captain of this slave ship. And he was, I watched a movie about his life, and if it was accurate, he was actually a slave in Africa for some time. Because the white man that captured the slave was married to an African lady, and she wanted a white slave. So he bought John Newton from, the, from one of his captains and, and Gave him to his wife as a white slave. So he went from a slave, working on a slave ship, to being a slave, to captain in a slave ship in his life. But one of these ventures he's making across the ocean, a great storm arises. And, and the ship is being tossed to and fro, and, and they think they're about to die. Like, there's no way out. It's, it's, it's all about to end. And he makes this proclamation to God because like I said, he has some knowledge of God. He just wasn't following God. And he, tell, and he tells God, he says, God, if you save me, I'll serve you with my life. I'll give you my life. And I have to imagine that as the storm begins to dissipate and as the sun begins to rise over the horizon, that's where the first part of the second verse comes in, where he wrote and he said, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." It reminds me of an old saying that I've heard many times. I don't have any experience with this. I maybe some of you older saints do. But there are no atheists in foxholes. Now, I imagine that as this storm is hitting his boat, he's probably evaluating his life. That he thinks it's about, all about to end. And he's thinking back on all the things that he's done and all the evil he's caused and all the things that are wrong with him. And he's realizing that if I die, it ain't going to be good. I know where I'm going to go. I know that if, what I know from the scripture, if it's true, I'm going, I'm going down. I'm not going up. And I have to realize that in this moment, his heart fears for his life. And he makes this proclamation to God that, that if you save me, I'll give you my life. So that grace caused him to make that proclamation to God. And then as that sun rose and that storm settled, that grace begins to relieve those fears. And now there's something new in him. Now his, his life, is, his, his old life is gone. A new has come. He's a new creation, a new creature. He's not the same person he was before. And if you read about the rest of his life, he goes on, he has a vital role as an abolitionist, ending slavery in, in the United Kingdom. So his life takes a full 360 after he finds this amazing grace and he comes and what he wants used to earn money, now he's trying to destroy it because he realizes the cruelty of it and the wrongness of it. That was the amazing grace in his life. 
changing his life and, and, and changing his, the trajectory of his life. And see, grace may come in many ways. It may come while you're looking for a change. I mentioned John Wesley a while ago. John Wesley was a man who spent his entire adult life in the ministry. He was a, a bishop in the Church of England. But he's all about works. He spent his life working for his salvation. He prayed, he fasted, he did all these things trying to earn his salvation. But he says every night he went to sleep, he still wondered had he done enough. If he never woke up, would he make it in? And he came to America and he led a church in America and he gets ran out because of some issues. One time for all that. He gets ran out of America because of some issues in his church and he comes back and he's just a failure, he feels like. He's a complete failure. And in the ministry, he's a failure. And he goes to this meeting one night and he hears a guy teach on the same verses that he's read a thousand times before about how he's saved by grace through faith. And he said in that moment, his heart was strangely warm. And in that moment, every, his whole outlook changed. It wasn't about what he could do. It wasn't about how hard he worked or how many hours he prayed or how many good deeds he did. It was about what Christ has already done, that Jesus had already paid it all, and that the grace covers him day in and day out and gives him the strength and the ability to do what God's called him to do. So his grace came while he was seeking for a change, while he was needing a change. For me, it came when I didn't even want it. I didn't want, didn't want God. I was perfectly content with the life I was living. I could have a drink when I wanted to drink. I could do the things I wanted to do when I wanted to do them. I was here because my wife said I needed to be here because she wanted to be here. and I had to make her happy. So I was here not wanting God, not looking for God, not needing God. I thought I had everything under control. But God had other plans. Like I said, I can't tell you the sermon. I can't tell you one word that was spoken. But I know I felt something in that song. And then as Marty began to preach, I didn't hear anything he said, but I felt two hands on my back. That was Billy Sellers and Tyler back there. And I, and I, I can't describe it any other way than an out-of-body experience. I felt like I was at the ceiling looking down at myself in that chair. And I, just, I experienced something so real and so strong that it changed everything I thought I wanted. Changed everything I thought I needed. I wasn't even looking for it, but it came. That amazing grace came, but I didn't want it. And many times, it can come early in your life. I was 21 years old. Drank all my teenage years. I turned 21 and quit drinking. Don't make any sense, does it? <laughs> but it may come early in our life, or it may come in our final moments. It may come in our final moments. Mr. David told me the other day about a message Alistair Begg did, talking about the thief on the cross. And the next day, Bryce told me about this message. Bryce sent it to me, and I went back and I watched it. And think about that. The thief on the cross was saved in his final moments of life. He didn't, he didn't know Jesus. He didn't know his name. He didn't know what he taught. He just saw something in Jesus. He saw something in Jesus that told him that he was, who, he was the son of God. He was this guy. They, you know, they're mocking him and ridiculing him. If you're the son of God, take yourself off that cross. He saw something in his faith, maybe in the way he was dying. Maybe that he saw something in Jesus' eyes that said, you don't understand. You don't understand. You're doing this to me, but I'm doing this for you. You know, he said, you don't understand. Like, I'm here for you. Maybe it was when Jesus cried out and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they did. Maybe he heard something and he saw something in his eyes that said, this man is who, who he says he is. He's not lying. He, he's for real. So I imagine, I love, I love how he, Alistair Begg explained it, where he said, uh, you know, thief dies and he comes to the gates. I don't know who was there before St. Peter, but let's say St. Peter's there. And he's like, how'd you get here? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? How, how'd you get here? I don't know. I was, I, was hang, I was hanging on a cross, and I died, and now I'm here. I don't, I don't know. So he goes, and he gets his supervising angel. And they come back, and he's like, you know, well, what do you believe? What do you know? Do you, do you, do you know? Do you know? What, you know what justification my faith belongs through grace? Do you know what all this stuff is? And like, no, I just know that that guy hanging in the middle, I told me I could come, and, and, and I'm here. Think about that. He didn't know anything about you. He may, he may have heard of Jesus, but he didn't know what he taught. He didn't know what he claimed to be. He just saw something in him, and he saved him. That grace came. That amazing grace came right at the end of his life. 
when it comes, it always does one thing. It shakes us to our core. It changes us. It changes our heart from the inside out. So what is grace? What is grace? Well, it's defined as the unmerited and unearned favor of God, favor and mercy of God. It's something that can never be bought, something that can never be earned, something that can never be exploited or sold. It's, it's unearned and unmerited. It's a gift. It's a free gift from God paid for by the blood of his son. So why do we need grace? Why do you need God's grace? In Colossians 1, Paul writes, and he's talking about Jesus. Who here is Jesus? And he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him, by Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in the earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. So look at the world around us. Is this like a world that's created by Jesus and for Jesus? Maybe by Jesus, but we look at the, watch the news, all the evil in the world, all the sin running rampant, all the adultery running rampant, the fornication running rampant, addictions running rampant, homosexuality running rampant, transgenderism running rampant. Is this the world created for God? It sure don't look like it. Because something happened in the beginning, something that separated man from God. Something put a wedge in between us. It changed the whole course of this world. In Romans 5.12, the Bible says that wherefore it's by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. See, when Adam sinned, when Adam ate the fruit, when Adam did the one thing God told him not to do, God told Adam, you can do anything you want to do, but don't eat this fruit. He did the one thing he wasn't supposed to do. When, when Adam did that, sin was born. Sin came into the world, and sin brought death. But it did more than that. It put a wedge between man and God. Where Adam once walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden, now there's a separation there where man can't even come to God because God can't be around sin. God is perfect, and God is holy, and sin can't be in his presence. So he put this wedge of sin between man and God, and we could never conquer that wedge on our own. We could never overcome that wedge on our own. How many of you ever tried to overcome sin on your own? Didn't work out too well, did it? Usually you fall flat on your face after a few short minutes or hours, maybe days. We usually fall flat on our face when we try to overcome sin on our own. But God had a plan. God had made a way. If you skip down a few verses to verse 18 and 19, it says that therefore, it's by the offense of one, it's by the offense of Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. I mean, when Adam sinned, all men, all men after Adam were born under condemnation of sin. We're born guilty of sin. We're born sinners because sin is in us. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto the justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, by the obedience of Christ, shall many be made righteous. So God sent his son, Jesus, into this world. And Jesus lived a perfect life. And he submitted his life, his full life to God's will, even to death, to death on a cross. And he did all of this that we might be reconciled to God. Think about it. I was, I was, right, I was praying about this and writing this out yesterday. And I had the thought of the curtain in the temple. The curtain in the temple was that wedge that separated man from God. No man besides the high priest could go on the other side of that curtain. And he had to be fully atoned for. His sin had to be covered before he could go in. They, they tied a rope of bells to his feet. So that if he walked in there and had sin in him, he'd drop dead. And they could pull him out. But only he could go in there once a year. He could go into the Holy of Holies and, and, and speak to God face to face or, or voice to voice. I don't really know how you say it, but he could, only he could go in God's presence. And what happened when Jesus died? When Jesus gave up the ghost on the cross, that curtain was ripped from top to bottom, symbolizing that through his death on the cross, that wedge was torn. And now man can come to God. Even as a sinner, you can come to God with a repentant heart and he'll forgive us and he'll 
put his son and spirit into us and help us to live a holy and righteous life because what Jesus did on the cross for us, that amazing grace came out of Christ and tore that veil from top to bottom, destroyed that web between man and God. God's grace fully restored us. So we needed God's amazing grace we, so that we could be in relationship with God again. We, now we can walk with God each and every day because of what Christ did, because of the grace that he poured out in him. The blood of goats and sheep could never cover man's sin. But the blood of Christ is enough to pay for every sin. I think I quote these verses just about every time that I preach. I didn't, I didn't fill in my notes because I mention them every time that I, I preach. I think five times now I put these two verses in there every time. First Timothy 4.10 says that Christ is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. To me, that tells me that Christ's blood covered all sin. He provided salvation for all men. But it's like a gift under the Christmas tree. If you don't ever open it, you don't ever receive it. It doesn't do you any good. It's just there. It's there for us, but you don't have to open it. You don't have to accept it. You can reject it. You can leave it there. You can not do anything with it, and it won't do you any good. But he's paid for your sin. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, he's paid for your sin. And he's covered you with his blood. And all you have to do is accept it and believe that he is who he says he is and confess your sins to him and repent and turn from him, and he'll wash you clean and make you white as snow. But if you don't do anything with it, it just sits there. You sin. In the first John 2, it says that Christ died for our sins, and not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That's the same thing. He died for the sins of the whole world. Not the sins of a few, not the sins of some, the sins of the whole world. So that we could come to him, so that we could know him, so that we could serve him and love him. In God's grace, he made Jesus become sin, even though he knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's my favorite verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It's not in my notes either. I just kind of quoted it. But it says, God made Christ to become sin for us, even though he knew no sin, so that we could be made the righteousness of God. Kind of a mouthful, but here's what it means. That means that before you come to know Christ, before you surrender your life to Christ, when God looks down from heaven and he sees you, he sees your sin. He sees all the sin that's in your heart. He sees all the condemnation in your heart, all the judgment that he's going to pour out. He sees your sin when he looks down on you. But after you come to Christ, after you surrender your life to him, after you begin to follow him and serve him, when he looks down, he no longer sees your sin. He sees the reflection of his son. Because he, you're now the righteousness of God in Christ. So now when he looks down on you, after you ask for forgiveness and repent of your sin and turn from your sin, when he looks down, he sees the reflection of Jesus Christ himself. He sees the reflection of his son. And he saves us. And he gives us new life. That is amazing grace. That my sin has been thrown as far as the east is from the west. And now I have the right to be called the son of God or a child of God. This amazing grace of God reconciles us to God. But it does more than that. It showers us with mercy of God so that we may be saved. In Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4, the Bible says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. See, God is rich in mercy. Even while we're dead in sins, he's still rich in mercy and he still loved us. But it's, he's rich in mercy. And his mercies are new every morning. Lamentations 3.22 says, it is, the, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So his mercies and his compassions are new for us every morning. And I'm not sure when I put these two verses together. I've always known that God's mercies are new every morning, but I, was, I guess I was reading in Matthew one day, and I read that part where it, in Matthew 6 where it says, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow, today has enough trouble of its own. And, I, and it just clicked, I thought. He gives us enough mercy each and every day to get through that day. Not too little, not too much. He gives us just enough mercy to get through the day. He gives us because we need it. We have to have it. We may not use it all, we may mess up, we may fall, we may stumble. But he gives us grace, and that mercy still covers us because he loves us that much. And he's rich in his mercy towards us. 
And he's faithful to give us mercy every day, even while we're dead in sin. See, that's one thing we, we miss a lot. Even, even unbelievers get grace from God. Every breath you take is grace from God. Every step you make is grace from God. Every time you close your eyes and you wake up in the morning, that's grace from God. He's giving you grace to live another day because he longs for all men to come to repentance. He wants all men to be saved, but he's not going to make you get saved. He's going to pour his grace out on you, and he's going to hope that somewhere along the way you humble yourself enough to receive the word from him and that you'll repent and be saved. He's faithful to give us mercy every day, even while we're dead in sin, because he longs for all to come to repentance. And it says that he quickens us to Christ through his amazing grace. When it says that he quickens us, it means he makes us alive. He takes our dead body, then he makes our spirit come alive in Christ, that we can live with him and be with him and walk with him. And he's raised us up together. This is verse 6 and 7. It says that he's raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. So God's raised us up with Christ. He's, he's given, he's raised us up, us, those who have believed, those who have surrendered, those who have made him not only Savior, but Lord. We have a big problem in the church today. We have a lot of people with the Savior. We don't have anything with the Lord. We all want forgiveness of sins. We all want a Savior. We don't, we don't want to change our lives. We don't want to change what we're doing. We don't want to make God Lord of our life because then we have to change the things that we do. We have to stop sinning. We have to stop living in sin. And I'm not saying that you have to be perfect because we can't be perfect. What I'm saying is there's a difference in living in sin and struggling with sin. See, when we struggle with sin, when we try, we try, we try, we fall, grace covers that. But if you're living in sin, you're living in open Sin. You're living a homosexual lifestyle. You're living a fornicating lifestyle. You're doing these things out in the open, and you're planning on doing it. Your life's revolving around doing it. You know you're going to do it. It doesn't matter what anybody says. You're going to do it. There's no grace for that. There's no covering for that. You are separated from God. You're living in your flesh, and the Bible says that when you live in the flesh, you're the enemy of God. So no matter where you are, what your position is, if you're living in sin, you're the enemy of God. That's not in here. That was free. Sorry. But he's raised us up. He's raised us up. Like I said, those who have believed, those who have surrendered, those who have made him not only Savior, but Lord. He's risen us up to heavenly places in Christ. Here's what I want you to get. It says that in ages to come, in ages to come, that's the trickiest thing to me about this whole thing. We can be assured of our salvation. We can be assured that his grace covers us. We may, not, we may go through a lot of pain here. We may go through a lot of heartache here. We may go through a lot of hurts here. But the reward to come makes it all worth it. The reward to come makes it all okay. See, we get the assurance of salvation on this side of heaven, but we don't get the gift we get to the other side. And that's how he shows his kindness to us by redeeming us and giving us eternal life. On this, in this life, in this world, we will suffer. We'll lose out on some things. We'll miss out on some things. We'll, we'll have hurts. We'll lose loved ones. We'll get bad diagnoses. We'll go through all those things. We'll have to face difficulty after difficulty and trial after trial. We'll face all those things here. There's nothing that can stop those things from happening to us here in an imperfect, fallen world. But when we get to heaven, it'll all be worth it. Every pain will be worth it. Every heartache will be worth it. Every, every time that we've stumbled and failed will be worth it because we know that we have an eternal reward. What does it matter if we gain the whole world yet lose our soul? What does it profit us if we trade eternal bliss for a few moments, for a few short years of pleasure or worldly treasure? Can't it see anything? I was kind of talking about something like this in the youth a few weeks ago. I was talking about our life, our 80, 100 years of life compared to eternity. I took a little black marker and I put a small little dot on the wall. And I said, that black dot is your 100 years of life. And all this is eternity. After all this, eternity is just beginning. 
You know, in, in the song, he says that when, we, when we've been here 10,000 years, we'll still sing his praises. But think about that. Not only at 10,000, at 10 million. When you've been there 10 million years, you'll still be singing his praises. When you've been there 10 trillion years, you'll still be singing his praises. You'll never run out of things to sing for because he's that good and he's that holy and he's that righteous. But we trade everything in eternity for just a few short years of pleasure, a few short years of fun, a few short years of, of doing what we want to do instead of what God asks us to do. Take the world. Give me Jesus. Give me eternity. I'll miss out on things here. I'll miss out on everything here if I have to. I don't care. I've messed up enough, she'll tell you. I try to live up to her level of perfection each and every day, and I fall short most days. <laughs> See, I, I, I'm trying to get some brownie points here, guys. I'm not in the doghouse or anything. That's my bad. She can sleep in the doghouse. But what, I, what I'm saying is, we, we trade everything for a few short years of pleasure, a few short years of doing things we know that God doesn't want us to do. And we say that we have time, we have time, we have time. And you may have time. But I even, I've even asked you before, how many of you, you know, teenagers, how many, how many of you know somebody who's died this your age? Everyone, everyone on raise their hand. When I was in seventh grade, we had a girl die in a jet ski accident. You know, we had several more die before we graduated. And it's just, you never know. But when that clock runs out, that clock runs out and it's over with. You can't change it. You can't take it away. It's, it's done. And no matter what you do, you can't change anything once it's over with. All you have is right here and right now. No one has promised tomorrow. And for many people, tomorrow never comes. I don't, I don't think there's any person that's ever died. Well, maybe a few, but I don't think there's any person that's ever died that planned on dying when they died. And nobody woke up when they're 31 years old and said, I'm going to die when I'm 35. I don't know I'm going to die on January 26, 2035 or whatever. Nobody does that. No, nobody plans their life out like that. We plan to live for 100 years. We plan to live for 120 years. However long, we, we, we don't ever plan to die. But we do. Granddad probably never thought she'd live to see 97. You know 97? How old are you? 97. She probably never thought she'd live to see 97 years. But here she is. Most of us will, ne will never get that far. <laughs> but she's a living testimony to the goodness of God, to the mercy of God, to God's amazing grace that he's poured in her life all throughout those 97 years. Even when she was far from God, he still poured that grace out in her life. And he still led her back to him and, and called her back to him. Even, even when she didn't listen, he still poured her back. Going back to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. It says, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We can't earn it. We can't earn it. If anybody could earn it, John Wesley would earn it. He, he prayed hours a day, read the hours a day, fasted two or three times a week. He had it figured out. But he could not earn that salvation. It's only when he would realize that he was saved by grace through faith. That's when it all made sense. That's when it all clicked. It's not about what I can do. It's about what he's already done. It's a gift of God. We, can't earn, we cannot earn salvation. It's a gift to God, paid for by the blood of Christ and given freely, given freely to all who will receive him, to all who will receive him. And that's one thing that I love about God. I love a lot of things about God. It's just one thing that I love about God. Is that anyone can come. Anyone. And many times it's the one who looks the least likely that he does the most with. Look at Rahab. Remember another story of Rahab? Rahab's a harlot. Rahab's a prostitute. I talked about Rahab in the youth a few weeks ago, and I really made it sick. Every time I said her name, I said Rahab's a prostitute, or Rahab's a whore, or Rahab's a, the hooker. Whatever it was, I, I made sure they knew they were talking about a prostitute. If nothing else stuck, they were going to know that she was a prostitute. Because we, well, when you think about the vows of the vows, I mean, a prostitute is probably one of the people you think about. A sinner of sinners, that's to be a prostitute, be a sinner of sinners. But what does the Bible say? Avoid sexual immorality at all costs, because that's a sin against your own body. And here she is, it's someone who sells her body. 
to earn a living. So we have Rahab, the prostitute, sells her body for a living. Sells her body to put food on her table. Sells her body to buy clothes. Sells her body to buy perfume. Sells her body to buy whatever she needs. She's a prostitute. Get that. She's a prostitute. Remember that? That's going to stick. If you don't remember anything else, remember Rahab's prostitute. She sold her body for a living. And today we'll sell our morals for just a few seconds of fun. We'll sell our morals for just a few minutes, a few days, a few years of fun. And many times we lose them all. But not only was she a prostitute, she was a Canaanite. A Canaanite, a people that God utterly abhorred, that God wanted completely wiped off the face of the planet because of their sin. So being a prostitute and being a Canaanite, she obviously was not Jewish. She was not a Israel, right? Pretty, pretty easy to figure that out. But Rahab lived in Jericho. She lived in the walls. She lived in the walls of Jericho, and she saw something. She saw God working in Jericho. This guy, she didn't know she saw him working in Jericho. As the stories came in for how Israel was marching through the wilderness and getting closer, she saw the courage and all the people in Jericho fall. She saw their faces fall to the ground, their courage completely destroyed, their strength dwindling because of what God was doing in Israel. She saw God working the courage face. She heard the stories from 40 plus years before that, how God parted the Red Sea and Israel marched off across on dry ground and then Egypt got stuck in the mud and then the waters came crashing down on top of them. That's crazy. How do you explain that? They walk over on dry ground and the people right behind them get stuck in mud. That's God. And the walls come crashing down and drown all of Egypt. She, see, she hears these stories and she hears these stories being told and she sees the people in Jericho that are already defeated. Israel hadn't even crossed the Jordan yet, and they're already defeated. It's already over. And she hears these stories, and she sees how Israel is destroying the kings on the other side of the Jordan. And she sees God just destroying the people in Jericho already. Their hearts are crumbling. Their, their strength is fading. They, 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 like I said, they're already defeated. There's nothing they can do. And she realizes, the God I've been worshiping, he's got a little G. But this God that Israel serves, he's got a big G. He is the God. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is, he is everything that my God is. And she sees and she knows that this God in Israel must be the God. So when she sees the spies, she hides them. She hides them. She helps them escape with the promise. She said, I know that your God is God. I know that he's already given you the city. And I know that no matter what we do, like you're going to conquer it. So I'm going to help you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to hide you. I'm going to lower you to safety. But I want you to save me and my family when you come. So if they're dropping, she's dropping the spies out of the window. She says, tie the, they say, tie the scarlet ribbon in your window. And when we come, everyone in this room will be saved. I think it's funny that it's scarlet. Scarlet like blood. Same as the blood they wiped on the doorpost before the Passover angel came and killed all the firstborn in Egypt. Same scarlet like the blood of Christ that will one day cover our sins and wash us white as snow. She hung a scarlet ribbon in her window. And sure enough, when they came and the walls fell, she was saved and her family was saved. And not only were they saved, they allowed her and her family to live outside of the camp, outside the camp of Israel. So not only was she saved, she was accepted. Right? And most of the time, we, we end the story there. That's, that's the story Rahab, right? We flip over to Matthew 1. Rahab's mission again. Right there in verse 5, where Matthew's giving his long genealogy of a little guy named Jesus Christ. In about verse 5 you find Salmon beget Boaz by Rahab. Salmon beget Boaz by Rahab. So think about that. Not only was she saved and accepted, she was grafted in. She married an Israelite man. And not only did she married an Israelite man, she had a child. That child's name was Boaz. You know who Boaz is? Boaz married a woman named Ruth. They had a child named, named Obed. And Obed had a little child named Jesse. And Jesse had eight kids, and his youngest one was named David. If you follow that line on down, you find the son of David who happens to be Jesus Christ. So Rahab the hooker, Rahab the harlot, Rahab the whore is the great grandmother of David, the great great grandmother of Jesus Christ. Not only was she grafted in and accepted, but she was put into the bloodline of the Savior of the world. And not only was Rahab put in that bloodline, so was Ruth. You know who Ruth was? Ruth was a Moabite. You know who the Moabites were? Moabites were the people born out of Lot's incest with his daughters. So you have a, a hooker 
and a woman born out of incest that are both in the bloodline of Christ. They were accepted. They were washed. They were clean. They were grafted in. They were made whole. They were made to be part of this great story that we tell today to, to show the love of Christ and his amazing grace. They were, they were part of that. Even though they've done way more than most of us have done in, in, as far as sinning in our lives, they were grafted in and they were part of the bloodline of Christ. If God can take a, a, a whore from Jericho and make her Christ's grandmother, what can he do with us? If we give him our lives, we surrender to him. There's no telling. His amazing grace can help us to do more. His amazing grace helps, saves us, and draws us. But it also helps us to live uprightly and righteous lives before him. If you flip over to Titus, see, I'm almost done. See, 17 pages don't take long. And I've gone, I've, I've added a lot of this. So. But his amazing grace can help us to live uprightly and righteous lives before him. In Titus chapter 2, the Bible says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify us to himself and procure your people, zealous of good works. So you catch this amazing grace has appeared to all men and teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. We can live uprightly and righteously before him. So his grace saves us and it helps us. It helps us grow and live righteous lives. See, the amazing grace of God isn't a one-time experience. It's something that lives in us. And each and every day it guides us and it leads us and it covers us and helps us to, to walk uprightly before him. It stays with us and it stays in us and it leads us and guides us to live out our faith in Christ. And it teaches us to turn from ungodliness and worldly lust. And it helps us to live righteously as we wait for our great Redeemer's return. This grace of God helps us to stand firm in the face of great opposition. It helps us, it gives us strength to walk in holiness when the whole world tells us we're wrong or tells us we're stupid or we're ignorant or whatever, we're too old, fat, nobody believes in that stuff anymore. Well, the grace of God will help us to stand strong in those times, to face that ridicule and to face those people that are mocking us and making fun of us and give us life and, and grace and, and mercy to, to, to speak to them. To maybe show them the same mercy that's been extended to us. To maybe show them the same grace that's been extended to us through him. The amazing grace of God will make our path straight and our feet strong to carry our faith in the gospel wherever we go. To live a holy life. Because as the book of Hebrews said, without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. That's something that's not hit on much anymore. It's holiness. We think that we just live our life and grace covers us, but that's, that's the wrong gospel. We have to change. We have to live a holy life. It says, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Holiness is the key. The amazing grace of God will allow us to go farther and do more for God than we ever thought possible. And many times what that grace of God will allow us to do may look foolish or misguided to those around us. There's an old saying I've always heard. If God brings you to it, he'll bring you through it. God brings you to it, he'll bring you through it. And sometimes it, looks, it sounds crazy. You know, maybe somebody's in your day, maybe God's whispering in your ear to quit your job, sell all you got and move to Africa. Or move to Nigeria. You're not in Nigeria, but move somewhere, South America, Brazil. God calls people everywhere. Maybe God's calling you to go somewhere. And you're, and you're resisting and you're fighting because it can't be God. God wouldn't tell me to do that. But here's the thing, God, called, God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God takes the weak thing to conquer the strong thing. God takes the dumb thing to conquer the smart thing. God, God takes all kinds of people and does all kinds of things with them, right? There's no limits to what God can do in, in our lives and through our lives when we allow him to. But sometimes it sounds so crazy to think that God wants us to do something. But if his grace is calling you to do something, he'll make a way for you. He's already making a way, and you're not even there yet. So in closing, I got, a, I got a little story that Mr. David told me a few years ago that sticks with me. I think about this story all, all the time, and I share it any chance I get. It's, tough. it's a great story. It's, his dad and Dr. Russell went to a, a missionary meeting several years, a long time ago. I'm not sure how long ago, but 
a long time ago. This missionary was talking about his recent trip. And this missionary is an older gentleman, I assume, older gentleman, and he felt called to this certain tribe in South America, a tribe of cannibals. You know, cannibalist, cannibals somebody eats human flesh. But felt called to a, to a tribe of cannibals. And he wanted to go. So he went to his denomination and he asked for them to send him. They wouldn't send him. They said he was too old. Too old or in too poor health. They wouldn't, they wouldn't sponsor him. Nobody would sponsor him. So he raised the money on his own. Raised the money on his own and he goes down to South America. He's in South America and he's trying to find someone to go with him to this tribe to, I guess, translate for him. Maybe just to give him a ride out there and, and nobody's going to. No, they're all like, you're crazy, you're stupid. Like, they're going to kill you and they're going to eat you. They're going to invite you down for dinner and then you're going to be dinner. Like, they're gonna, that's, that's what's going to happen. Give it up, go home. You missed God. You missed him. You missed him. It, he, he's not telling you to do this. So he looks and he looks and he, and he finally finds someone to take him to this tribe. He finally finds someone. And as they're coming over the horizon, they can see the village off in the distance. And they see the people standing around and they see one of them look up and begin to run towards them. Begin to run towards them. And they're probably uh, regretting their choices up to this moment. <laughs> they see this guy running towards them, especially as he gets close enough, they can tell from his, his dress that this is, this is the witch doctor. You know, many of these tribes, the witch doctor holds all the power. They say, if he says jump, they say how high. Like he, he tells them what to do, they do it because he's in charge and he's got all the doo-doo and stuff and the witch doctor is running towards them. And he's running towards them and he's running towards them and, he, and he's getting closer and closer and closer and the witch doctor finally comes up to him and he stops. And he looks at the guy and he says, We've been waiting for you. Where have you been? And God had already began revealing himself to this witch doctor, to this tribe, through dreams, through visions. He'd been calling them and drawing them. He told them that some man was going to come to them, and he was going to tell them all they needed to know. And they'd been waiting on this man to come. His amazing grace had already been at work in this tribe. But, he went, but he went, the guy hadn't got there yet. So he goes in this tribe and he shares the gospel with them. And I never asked about the results. I'm assuming they all got saved and they're all living for God and they're all glorifying God now and still today. But how great is that? Everybody told him he was crazy. Everybody told him he's too old, he's too poor healthy. He, he'll never make it. They'll kill him, they'll eat him. But he knew God was calling him. He knew the grace of God was working in his life and sending him to these people. And they're waiting on him. So what's God calling you to? What has God been calling you to? What have you been putting off because you think it's too crazy, you think it's too out there, but you know it's something God wants you to do? If His grace is leading you towards something, His grace is already preparing the results. What does He say? He says, my word is never put forth in vain. It always holds true. If God's asking you to speak to somebody, speak to them. It don't matter if, if what he's telling you, is maybe, maybe you think what he's leading you to say is so far out of left field, so far off base, that it won't mean anything to him. Just tell him. Just tell him. I promise you, 98.8% of the time, it's just what they needed to hear. It's just what they got going on. It's just what's going on in their life and it's what's hindering them in their walk with him or in their life with him. I just get on Jessica all the time. It seemed like for like four or five months there, Maybe not that long, but I look up every time during worship, and she she'd be gone. And I'd watch she walk over somebody, and she'd lean over there, and she and they would just crumble and cry and cry and cry. And I'd get on to her, and we get across. Quit making people cry. Quit being mean to people. I don't know what you're saying. Just stop. But she was just being obedient, and you could tell from the reaction they had that it was exactly what they were going through, exactly what they needed to hear. No matter what God's calling you to do, obey him. He told King Saul, he said, it's not obedience worth more than sacrifice. It's what he wants for us. He wants our obedience. He wants us to, to go when he says to go. And that's exactly why Rahab and, and Ruth are mentioned in Matthew's genealogy. It starts out with this genealogy. He mentions those non-Jewish women, Rahab, Matthew, Rahab, Ruth. You mentioned some other ones, but how does the gospel match you in? Go forth into all the world, preaching the gospel, proclaiming the good news. 
He's, he's showing that God's already brought these outsiders in. Now he's going to send you to the outsiders. His grace is always working. His grace is always in our lives and working through us. The only thing that hinders God's grace from working completely is us because we're not obedient, because we're scared, or because we think it sounds too crazy or too out there. It's not. It's not. God can do whatever God wants to do because God is completely sovereign in all things. And if you resist it long enough, he'll find somebody else to go for you. And you'll just miss out. Because God is God. We can't put limits on God. We can't hold God back. God's will will be accomplished one way or another. We say God never changes, but then we expect God to change his will for us. Well, if God never changes, he can't change his will. He's going to have his will, and it's going to be done. No matter what we do, no matter what we say, he will fulfill what he has planned. God's amazing grace strengthens us to live out this holy life. If I was in that guy, I wouldn't have gone. Well, they told me I was crazy. I said, you're right. <laughs> I'd gone back home. <laughs> I would have, or I would have pulled a Gideon and made God give me five million signs to make sure that this is right. But God is God. And God will pull us through. God will send you somewhere you never thought you'd go, and he will do more with you than you ever thought he, you could do because he's good. So y'all stand with me. Y'all stand with me. And I hope today that you've been touched, reminded, and encouraged about God's amazing grace because look, it looks a little different to each and every one of us. No, nobody's stories are the same. If all our stories are the same, it wouldn't be worth telling, right? But my story is my story, and Scotty's story is Scotty's story. And my story will speak to some people, and Scotty's story will probably speak to a lot more people than mine will. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I know. Everybody, everybody's different, but everybody's story speaks to someone. Don't ever be afraid to share it. Well, it was the revelation that we're saved by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. Share it every chance you get. It may speak to you, it may not, but share it. But nothing, can, nothing speaks more of God than what he's done in your own life. And the way it's only, his amazing grace has touched you and transformed you, that speaks more to anybody than a bunch of Bible verses ever could. 